that's awesome. Uh, in preparation for today's message, uh, I wanted you to know that I went on the internet and my curiosity was piqued. And so uh, hopefully you can bear with me. Today, I, I've titled it, it, it was um, for, by invitation only. And you know, that could still be a subset uh, uh, or a subtitle, but I kind of changed it around because I wanted us to kind of think about that where we're going to look at today is a king-sized invitation with a bite-sized response. And I tried to do a little playoff words, but also I got to tell you, while I was doing this, I was getting really hungry and I was thinking about one of those king-sized Milky Way bars. And so, you know, I'm just telling you, man, I was just like, hey, yeah. And, and for me, in my mind at least, uh, um, that's a scary place to try to enter into. Um, it, it makes really good sense with the passage we're going to look at today. But uh, also, uh, I'm just going to share with you the top 10 most expensive weddings that have ever happened. And we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be revealing them all to you. And, and so I want you to understand something. Uh, number 10, Paul McCartney and his ex-wife, Heather Mills, they got married in 2002, and their wedding cost $3 million. Now, the number to the right is the number in which inflation, that's what it would be for today. All right? So... Um, you'll see other weddings that maybe like the next one, Elizabeth Taylor and her, her husband, Larry Fortensky, um, theirs was cheaper, but they got married in 1991. So when you look at inflation, really their wedding cost $4.35 million. Okay? Um, people said, boy, Paul McCartney, <laughs> whew. He, he, he spent a whole lot more of that money on alimony afterwards. But anyway, then we get to number eight, Liza Minnelli and David Guest. And, and as you can see up there, $3.5 million in 2002, the same year Paul and Heather got married. And today that would equate to $4.61 million, folks, that, that people have spent their weddings on, uh, money on weddings, okay? Uh, number seven, Happened 11 years ago, Chelsea Clinton and Mark Mesvinsky, okay? $5 million. So today only goes up to 5.4, almost $5.5 million. All right? So let's go now to six, five, and four. Number six, Wayne Rooney, a soccer player, married his, his high school sweetheart, Colleen McLaughlin, $8 million in 2008. And you can see that now it would be worth $8.82 million. Kim Kardashian, number five. You know what? In some polls, she could have made it on there twice, but I'm not going to go there. So Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys, who is a basketball player, paid $10 million in 2011. Today it'd be approximately $10.88 million. That, that wedding lasted 72 days. Number four, Prince William and Kate Middleton. Okay, $34 million in 2011. And you know what? The reports are that 32, $32 million of that was for security. So those are the, the top 
seven. Now we're going to get to get to the top three. Starting at the bottom, Venetia Mittal and Amit Bhatia, okay? $60 million in 2004. Today, that would equate to $75.38 million. Now, if we took the time for me to give you the different details on all these things, I mean, some of these people, they flew in thousands. And when I say flew them in, not to where that, they flew them to a destination wedding. And, and some of these celebrations went on for a week in five-star hotels. The gifts that they gave their guests is like, it's incredible. Number two, Princess Charles and Lady Diana. Now, you know what? I think a lot of you, at least if you were old enough back then in 1981, you'll remember that. I mean, millions and millions of people watched. They had to have 27 uh, wedding cakes. Okay? Um, today, that would equate to $125 million. And the number one was this sheik, Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayan, and Princess Salama. How do you like that? He's got this whole name, <laughs> Princess Salama. Okay? They spent $100 million in 1981, the same year that Charles and, and Diana got married. Today, that equates to $261 million for a wedding celebration. I mean, it's crazy when I started seeing that. And that's not even counting all these other ones that were only a mere one or two million dollars. Where some of the gowns that these women wore were like $400,000. Just the wedding dress. Now, um, I've had... I've done two Cooper Daughter weddings, okay? Two Cooper Daughter weddings. And I got a question mark up there, and, and I'm, I guess what? I'm going to tell you how much it cost. It cost, put that aside, peanuts, man. I mean, <laughs> peanuts compared to what we're talking about here. I mean, man, I've given away two daughters in marriage, and I've had one son who's gotten married. And I can promise you that all three of their weddings put together wouldn't have even gotten us close onto the map. Thank you, Lord. Okay, I mean, whew. And uh, do you know the hardest part for me during uh, their engagements? It wasn't the money. I mean, it, it was. I mean, yeah, there were times Shirley and I were like, uh, you know, because it's not like we're rolling in dough here. But fortunately, um, I mean, really fortunate, uh, my girls, Lexi and Amanda, and when I say my girls also, my wife, they are incredible do-it-yourself wedding coordinators. I mean, they... They were incredible. And uh, both girls and their husbands uh, loved their weddings. At least that's what they've told me. You know, um, my son, it, it, his costed significantly more, but his in-laws took care of that. So I, I was good to go. All right? I was good to go. But the hardest part for me was deciding who to invite. It was, 
Because you see, I, 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 I wanted to invite people that I went to school with. I wanted to invite people from my first church where I had been there for 20 years. I wanted to invite people from my last church where I'd been for 12 years. I wanted to invite a whole bunch of people from this church where I, I, I've, I've only been here still less than nine years. I wanted to invite everybody I knew, but that was unrealistic. And besides, you know, the, the bride and the groom, they want to invite their friends, <laughs> right? They want people there that they know, not just a bunch of people that I know. And uh, the in-laws need to invite their family and friends, right? Imagine how hard it was for Brad and Margie and Shirley and I, two pastors trying to whittle down, and, and two big families trying to whittle down uh, to 200 people. That was not easy. Um, it, was, it, was, it was fun, but it was hard for Joe and Amanda's wedding. And then, uh, or Joe and Marie, Jonathan's parents. Um, you know, when Jonathan and Lacey got married, I mean, Jonathan wanted a very small wedding reception. He would, I think he would be about the only guy that I know who would have wished that they could get married during COVID. Right, Jonathan? Because then he'd be like, yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, um, every time he would ask me if we were cutting the numbers, uh, I would, I just have to be honest with him. At first, I kind of tried to ignore it, but then I had to be honest with him and said, no, um, we're actually adding to the numbers. And he'd go, oh, no. I mean, he just was like, oh, man, can't we just keep it here? And, you know, uh, welcome to the reality of marrying a pastor's daughter, right? Who also happens to come from a big family. So he was doomed before he even knew it, all right? But, you know, that's just what happens. Who to invite was so hard for me because I wanted people from my past to celebrate with Shirley and I all that the Lord had done in our children's lives. It wasn't a pride thing to show off our kids. I, I, I hope you understand this, but it was a, a gratitude thing because I wanted people to be able to see what the Lord has been doing in my kids' lives. How the Lord answered prayers for our kids' spouses. That was a bragging thing on God. It really wasn't like, hey, you want to come to the wedding and see how great my kids are? Because I, I can tell you that that's not part of the equation. It was like, man, I just want people to see Jesus. And, and I just felt like one of the ways that they can see Jesus is by seeing uh, my kids and their choices, and how God has honored that. So today we're going to look at, at the last of the three parables. Pastor Roger covered uh, two of them last week that the Lord spoke to the chief priests and the Pharisees about. Now this was on a Tuesday. And keep this in the back of your mind because as Roger keeps preaching, this was on a Tuesday. On Friday, they crucified him. 
So Jesus is, is pulling out all the stops. Last week, Roger uh, shared with us about the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21 at the end in verses 28 through 46. In the first parable, he shared about the opportunities to believe and the missed opportunities to believe. Just know that's going to bleed over into this parable as well. And in the second, he shared how critical it is that people believe and that they shouldn't miss that opportunity when it comes. You know why? Because there are consequences for unbelief. And folks, we're going to see that in this passage as well. This third parable is known as the parable of the wedding feast. And as I've told you, I've titled it king-sized invitation and a bite-sized response. And Jesus is talking to the chief priests and Pharisees that we saw in, in chapter 21, verses 45 and 46, the last two verses before we start in chapter 22. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, those first two, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> That's good perception there, guys. Yep, he sure was. And they knew it. And they check out their motives in verse 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they were trying to shut him up because they couldn't shut him up. They'd ask him questions and he'd come right back at them. And they couldn't answer his questions. And because of that, Jesus said, I'm not going to answer yours. Because they knew if they admitted, if they were truthful, then everything, everything like it just started to crumble. They'd have no foundation in which to try to hold on to their authority. So we pick it up in chapter 22, verses one and two. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, first of all, some facts about weddings in Jesus's day. And guess what? You can go to gotquestions.com and find some of these things out, or you can go on some other Bible uh, um, uh, websites and find out some of those things just, you know, for interest. But the Jewish people of this day, and the Jewish leaders especially, they knew the culture of that day. But for us, sometimes it's good. I don't want to assume that that everybody in here knows about some of these things. But you know what? Uh, In Jewish society, the parents of the betrothed generally drew up a marriage contract. And they, they drew that up. And the bride and groom would meet, perhaps for the first time, when the contract was signed. Imagine that today. The couple was considered married at the point when that contract was signed, but they would separate until the actual time of the ceremony. The bride would remain with her parents, and the groom would leave to prepare their home. And this could take quite a while. So nobody knew when he was going to be done preparing the home. They knew that they were married, by contract, but there was no ceremony, no celebration yet until that groom came back to get his bride. 
And when the home was all ready, the groom would return for his bride without notice. The marriage ceremony would then take place and the wedding banquet or feast would follow. And, and it could last for up to a week, even way back then. And as Jesus is sharing this, he's comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, verse 2. Some say that the kingdom is the most important topic in all of Jesus' teaching. And in Matthew, um, kingdom of heaven is used 32 times. And Mark and Luke, it's not kingdom of heaven, it's kingdom of God. Those are interchangeable for the most part, but because Matthew was speaking to a Jewish audience and the others weren't, it, it makes a difference understanding about this. And so it was so important. The kingdom was worth more than anything received at one of those multi-million dollar wedding receptions that I alluded to earlier. I mean, we sit here, and, and can you just imagine Imagine for a second being invited, being invited to a wedding that opulent. And, and you know, it's almost like, I, I have to admit, I watched Oprah a few times quite a few years ago because, and, and then even Ellen, because, you know, when you see that one show of the year where they, the, whoever's in the audience got all those prizes, right? It was like, Wow. How did those people figure out that on that day they were going to be handing out all those things? And, you know, I mean, they were known for just giving incredible prizes away to their audience for that time. And yet on those weddings I shared with you about, oh my goodness, some of them were getting $100,000 cars. Some of them were getting homes just for coming and sharing in the celebration. And you just go, wow, I... I I wouldn't mind being invited to one of those, right? I mean, it's kind of cool. But it was just like, wow, that, that just blows me away. But the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is worth more than any of those put together. Amen? And sometimes we forget about that, don't we? When we're kind of stuck in our world right here, we forget that Jesus was all about the kingdom. He was all about the kingdom. So I love that he does this parable. The king would pull out all stops for his son. He would have the best of everything and we don't even hear from Jesus all the preparations that the king did in this parable. Jesus didn't include them because obviously he didn't feel it was important with the truths that he wanted to communicate. But we know that everything was done to the hilt. Nobody was going to outdo the king when it came to loving on and, and just wanting to make sure that everybody could celebrate his son. The father was doing everything. And in this parable, the king, that's God the father. We already see the wedding feast. That's the kingdom. 
And the son, that's Jesus. And so the father would do everything, everything to invite everyone to come and celebrate his son. Now at this point in time, it wasn't everyone. It was only Israel. It was only Israel. So the very first thing that I saw in here in the king's first invitation, his first invite, it was a select group. And they refused. Look at verses two and three. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Hey, everybody, you remember those cards now that save the date? That's not really your invitation, but it kind of is, right? When you get those in the mail from, from somebody, a relative or a friend that's you know, six months out or something like that, save the date because we're, we're planning on getting married on this date, right? It's not your, your formal invitation, but it, it's like, yeah, you kind of know you're invited, right? Well, that's what would happen in, in, in these days as well. In the biblical times, the, the servants would have been sent on out and, and the people would have known, kind of saved the date. But they didn't have the calendars or Apple watches or, or phones or things like that so they could keep track of all that stuff. So then as time got closer, the king would then send out the servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Hey, guess what? It's happening. So come on. Celebration's about to begin. It's time to feast. I mean, it's party time, folks. A lot of you, well, I don't know about a lot of you. Um, in years past, I would get family or friends together for Super Bowl Sunday. Right? And man, we'd have a lot of food and a lot of yelling and kind of like, ah, a lot of crying, you know, when the Rams lost a couple years ago. But that's okay. You know, and, and it's just great it's celebration. That's nothing compared to the party that we're reading about here. It's nothing compared to what Jesus is trying to communicate in this story. But here's what happens. Verse three, it's, it's party time, folks. And we see at the end of verse three, but they would not come. Not that they could not come, they would not come. They weren't willing to come and be spoiled by the best food. Be spoiled by having one of the best times. And you're just like, wow. This was completely unnatural and unexpected. Because think about in those times, if the king who had the choicest food, it's not like there was a Pavilions or a Trader Joe's or a Ralph's or any other store you want to think of, let alone a Costco, available for all the people there. So when the king invited you to a wedding feast, man, you were there. 
uh, you're going to give birth, honey? Okay, um, I hope you get taken care of because I'm going to go and have a great meal. I mean, it, it really was that kind of mindset. And, and yet, they weren't willing to come. In real life, a royal invitation is not refused. It just isn't. People are very glad to be present at our royal wedding feast. There had to be some kind of mistake, right? I mean, why, why, why weren't the people willing? In spite of this unexpected reaction from, from those invited, the king still graciously sends another invite. Now imagine this for a second. It would hurt bad enough if, if your friends and, and family members kind of like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, Craig, but I got something else going on. But I mean, you're the king, and you sent this invite. I, w- I want you to come. Israel, come. I've called you as a chosen people. But they don't. So then we see the sing- king's second invite. That's a select group, but they rejected. They didn't just refuse, they rejected. Verses four through seven. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Man, honestly, I'm thinking my own emotions, I'd been like, you don't want to (laughs) come? No problem. You're the ones who's going to be missing out because we are going to have some kind of celebration. I gave you a chance. Tough luck, right? I mean, that, that's kind of, I'm just telling you, that, that's what my mindset, my attitude uh, probably would have been. But this king is going, you know what? Gosh, maybe, maybe you misunderstood my servants. Maybe you didn't understand. No, I mean, we are ready. Every is ready. Come on, folks. Come and join me. Be my guests as we celebrate my son's wedding. Food's all prepared. And we're ready to celebrate. And this feast is going to go on for days. I mean, you're not just getting one meal. You're not just getting three or four courses. You're getting stuffed with the very best that was available. But look at their response in verses five and six. It says, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. They thoroughly rejected the king's gracious invitation. Some used uh, trivial excuses of preoccupation with everyday affairs. I got to go tend to the farm. Man, I got to work. Business is calling. I got to make that sale. Others even actually abused some of the servants and then others even killed 
some of the servants. This is absolutely the most unbelievable insult to the king as one could possibly imagine. The king's extended invitations, not once, but twice. And they respond like this. Their response was akin to an act of treason. And here's how he took care of those who rejected his gracious invitations to celebrate with him his son's wedding. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That word angry, it really doesn't even capture it. He was furious. He was furious. He sent his troops, not all of his army, but he sent a detachment that knew they're going to take care of this. And they went and destroyed those who murdered, and they burned down the whole city. He exercised his judgment on them. His patience was exhausted. Uh, we want a king who's gracious, merciful, loving, forgiving, patient. But you know what? The king does have his limits. And who are we to judge when his limits have been hit? He's perfectly within his right as king to exercise his wrath. And he does. And no one can say he didn't give those people an opportunity. Notice what he does next, though. Because he, he sends out a third invitation. But it's an open invitation. And this is when it's an invitation to everyone. Reading verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They weren't worthy. So then in verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. In other words, go and hit all the roads that are leading out of town, that are outside of town. And anybody you find, invite them. Because guess what? We're still celebrating my son. The food is ready. We're going to have a feast. The others, they weren't worthy. Verse 10, and those servants went out into the rows and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Wow, the wedding feast is ready, just like it was when we read in verse 4. But then he states, those who were invited, past tense, they weren't worthy. Considering what they had done to the king's servants, that would be an understatement, wouldn't it? This is the key development in this parable. Don't miss it. Instead of the privileged few being invited to the wedding, the undeserving and unworthy, as many as you find, out on the main roads, they receive an invitation. The majority of the Jews were not worthy to attend the messianic banquet at the beginning of the kingdom because they rejected God's gracious offer of entrance by faith and belief in his son, Jesus. 
Therefore, God's slaves would go out into the whole world to invite as many as would come, Jews and Gentiles. In this parable, Jesus was saying that Israel and the leaders were the special ones who were invited in the king's first two invitations, but now he's saying that everyone is invited. The poor, the sick, the foreigners. Lord forbid, the Gentiles. Everyone. And in verse 10, it even says the bad and good were invited. This demonstrates that Jesus accepts people, that the Jewish establishment will regard as evil and totally unacceptable, but Jesus accepts them. So thankful for that. How the tables have turned, right? How they've turned. The Jews and their leaders refused and rejected the king's invitation to celebrate the son's wedding feast a couple of times, and the Gentiles and the down and outers just hit the lottery. I mean, they are winners. The wedding hall is filled, and it has undeserving guests who respond to the king's gracious invitation. Now, I want to bring another highlight up to you because it's part of this passage, but there are wedding crashers, folks. There are wedding crashers. I've never seen the movie, but I know that the movie's about two guys who all they do is crash crash weddings because that way they can get with girls and they can have a great feast and drink an awful lot. Don't recommend you see the movie. I can just tell you that from the preview. But it got me thinking about this, this one individual here. They, they, they don't know anybody at the wedding. They're not related to anybody at the wedding. They just crash it. Verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, so the king came on in, he, he wanted to see his guests. He knew who they were. N- not in the sense of, oh, my best friend here, my best friend there, but he knew, hey, okay, these are the people I sent my servants out to get, and they came, great. And he's looking out, and all of a sudden it says, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And, and Jesus tells the story, he says, and the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. Now wedding garments were provided by the king. He would never expect people to come to such a lavish wedding without providing for them the proper wedding garment to wear. Some of the details on some of those extravagant weddings that I talked to you about, that's what they did too. I mean, they were buying people dresses and suits, multiple, because you had to have one for the wedding and then one for eating and then one for going out dancing and then one for just lounging. I mean, they just did that, right? And and back in Jesus' time, that was not unheard of. It's like, okay, the king's throwing a a big wedding feast for, for his son. He's gonna provide the wedding garments for everybody. And he had those. But um, 
you know, proper attire was expected, but this one guest refused to wear the wedding garment. And what does that wedding garment represent? Well, it represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it represents in this story. The righteousness of Christ, that perfect righteousness that God freely gives and provides to all who repent of sin. And I say repent of sin because that's earlier what John the Baptist's message was. That's earlier what Jesus first started out right after he was tempted, right after he was baptized by John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's salvation alone in Jesus. But the man who refused to wear the king's wedding garment represents all those who attempt to enter the kingdom of heaven dressed in their own righteousness. They think that they can crash it and get away with it, but they can't. And do you know why? Because the king knows his guests. He knows who's invited. He knows who's there. Verse 13 and 14. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. In the parable, Jesus declares that God judges all responses in Israel to the invitation to the kingdom of heaven, including the nation in general, the leaders especially, and individuals personally. There's nobody without excuse. For many are called, but few are chosen. Everyone heard the the king-sized invitation, and they were all there because of his generosity. But Jesus sounds a warning. Those who hear God's call and know of his grace must not think that a call is the same as a true response. And boy, I I wish I had more time to just to talk about that. But make sure you understand this. Those who hear God's call and know of his grace must not think that a call is the same as a true response. The gospel invitation, it goes far and wide, but guess what? Not everyone who hears it is one of God's elect. Churches have many people who think that, oh yeah, I believe that. And yet there's no transformation, there's no change in their life whatsoever. They still think the same way before they made a a decision for Christ that maybe was just off of emotion or maybe was for whatever reason. And maybe they were sincere, but they just, you know what, for whatever reason didn't stay with it. Many are invited, but some refuse to come. Others who do come refuse to submit to the norms and the expectations of the kingdom. And guess what? Therefore, they are rejected. Those who remain are referred to as the chosen. Like the children of Israel, many were called out of Egypt, but few were chosen to enter the promised land. Like those of Gideon's army, all were called, but only 300 
were chosen. Like the 12 spies that were sent to spy out the land, only two were chosen, Caleb and Joshua, for what they had seen. A king-sized invitation and a bite-sized response. We talked about this wedding feast this, this morning, and, and now we transition into the Lord's Supper. And so I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11.